Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. The House impeachment process picks up steam. Next week, the formal inquiry will hold hearings for the first time in public. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff announced the move on Wednesday. Those open hearings will be an opportunity for the American people to evaluate the witnesses for themselves, to make their own determinations about the credibility of the witnesses, but also to learn firsthand about the facts of the president's misconduct. Meanwhile, this week's election results offer a lot of promise for Democrats looking ahead to races in 2020. Republicans hold on to the Mississippi governor's mansion, but Democrats sweep both houses of the Virginia legislature. And a Democrat claims the victory in the Kentucky governor's race with a razor-thin margin. Apparent winner Andy Bashir told a crowd of supporters on Tuesday that his victory sends a clear message. It's a message that says our elections don't have to be about right versus left. They are still about right versus wrong. The Republican incumbent says not so fast and claims offering no evidence there may have been voting fraud. And former Attorney General Jeff Sessions runs for U.S. Senate again. He announced his bid for his former Alabama seat last night to Fox News' Tucker Carlson. I have some convictions that I think need to be pushed. We need to get some Republicans moving. They haven't been pushing hard enough to advance the Trump agenda. And so that's what I look forward to doing. And and if I think I can contribute to that. Join us. How have the latest revelations affected your thinking about impeachment or about the president? Join us anytime at onpointradio.org or on the Twitters and the Facebooks at On Point Radio. With us from Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, Karen Tumulty. She's national political columnist for The Washington Post. Karen, great to have you back. Great to be here. Also with us from Washington is Jackie Kucinich. She's Washington Bureau Chief for The Daily Beast. Jackie, great to have you as well. Thanks for having me. And from Hanover, New Hampshire, our own On Point News Analyst, Jack Beatty, once more joins us. Hello, Jack. Hello, David, Jackie, and Karen. So let's talk, I guess, first. Uh, Jackie, you've been covering uh, this Michigas and the Capitol Hill. Let's talk about the impeachment hearings. We're going to talk a bit about what we've learned this past week. But first, let's talk about the prospect of public hearings, long clamored for from in some ways, both the right and the left. What's what's on tap and what what does that signal to you? Yeah, so uh, in, in some ways, Republicans are um, getting exactly what they wanted, bringing this into the light. And we've been seeing that also with the release of the transcripts of the various officials that have already already testified to um, the investigators over the past few weeks. Don't expect them to say thank you or anything, though. That that doesn't happen in impeachment land. Um, uh-huh. But uh, Gra- we'll gratitude see. not not on the agenda. Not a thing. Not a thing. But you know, next week we will hear from Ambassador Taylor, who of course was the envoy in Ukraine, um, and he when he testified um, his. Uh, his testimony that was released this week and when he testified to members of Congress, it, it, they were really shocked by the vivid way that he described this scheme that Sondland and Volcker and Giuliani had uh, tried to concoct be on a dual for a uh, dual track to diplomacy to try to get um, to try to get the um, Ukrainian president 
to announce an investigation into Ukraine. So, so um, Jackie, ahead, Jackie let me just stop you there so I can give listeners just a taste of sure. what that sounded like. That was behind closed doors. That was late last month that Ambassador Bill Taylor gave his testimony to the House Intelligence Committee. The transcript released, as you say, just two days ago. Representative Pat, Sean Patrick Maloney of New York, he's a Democrat on that committee, spoke Wednesday on MSNBC about it. Ambassador Taylor chose specific words. He said this was about political gain. This was about advantage in a political campaign. So my questions were designed to get at exactly what he meant. He didn't say investigations. He didn't say just Burisma. He made crystal clear that he knew that there was a quid pro quo being demanded. He puts it together very clearly, a a quid pro quo that would benefit the president personally, politically, and it's wrong. So, Jackie, that, that gets at a little bit of what you're trying to convey there, that this is this is significant testimony, you think. Right. And, and they believe that he was such a good witness and his testimony was so convincing that it may move the needle, uh, perhaps with the public, because a lot of this is a public campaign and to get uh, the American people on board with a potential impeachment of the president. Um, we will also hear from Deputy Assistant Secretary of State George Kent on Wednesday. And then finally on Friday, uh, the former ambassador to Ukraine, Masha Ivanovich, who um, several of these witnesses have testified was pushed out in part by uh, Giuliani um, and others, um, will testify on Friday. So it's going to be a very full week. Jack Beatty, the most recent uh, transcripts came out just yesterday about George Kent. He's an assistant secretary of state. Uh, presumably, you think of someone as probably pretty you know, loyal to the, the secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, and the administration. You know, what struck you about what he had to say? Well, uh, he uh, decried in uh, harsh terms the campaign of what he called it, campaign of slander and lies – mounted by Rudy Giuliani to uh, discredit the ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. Uh, and, and he went on to say that as, as a career uh, diplomat who has seen how political, how in abroad uh, banana republic practices of using the power of government to prosecute your political enemies, he, he was incredulous to find himself in the middle of something like that uh, in, in Ukraine. In other words, the president was trying to use the power of the Ukrainian government in this case to prosecute his political enemy, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, and he did give some fodder, and we'll hear more about it, to Republicans when he mentioned that when he was in the um, uh, uh, Obama administration, because he's been a diplomat for a long time, He warned uh, the State Department about the um, Hunter Biden's um, role in Burisma. He raised the question, and and I raised my concerns that I'd heard that Hunter Biden was on the board of a company owned by somebody the U.S. government had spent money trying to get tens of millions of dollars back, and that could create the perception of conflict of interest. He then says, the message that I recall hearing back, was that the vice president's son, Bo, was dying of cancer and that there was no further bandwidth to deal with family-related issues at that time. So the Republicans are seizing on that. 
So, Jack, from what I'm hearing from you, in some ways, it's as though uh, it's a reminder that uh, citizenship is, in some ways, a, a, you know, a an advanced level uh, challenge, and that we've got to keep two things in our head. There may have been legitimate questions to ask about the Bidens, and yet, what this career diplomat, what this very senior State Department official was testifying to, at least in the private testimony that we've seen the transcripts of now, was that. What he saw from Rudy Giuliani, the president's advisor, emissary and uh, you know, lawyer, was completely inappropriate and was completely circumventing what, the way in which diplomacy is supposed to work and, and how foreign relations are supposed to work. That's right. It was a sort of ad hoc, or to, which is a, a Latin way of saying chaotic and, and possibly uh, uh, and, and, uh, you know, shameful uh, mm-hmm. effort to, to run American policy on his own with what connection with the president. We don't know. It's interesting. Washington Post today says the new Republican defense is we're going to throw Giuliani, Sondland and Mulvaney under the bus and say they did this all on their own. President had nothing to do with it. So, Jack, we'll get back to the question of the Republican strategy maybe after this first break. But Karen Tumulty, I want to bring you in to talk a little bit about a name that Jack just mentioned, Gordon Sundland. He's the ambassador to the European Union, someone whose words aren't don't always make uh, world headlines, right? And yet we've been paying very closely attention to him and parsing what he's had to say exceptionally closely because of the revision to his testimony. What did we learn from the ambassador this week about what he had said in previous weeks? Well, and the ambassador's uh, loyalty to to Donald Trump cannot is not in question here. He was a major campaign contributor, uh, and it, you know there was a starting. Why is the EU ambassador even involved in the Ukraine? But he suddenly decided this week, before the transcript of his testimony becomes public, to change it on a very, very key point where he said, oh, yes, I suddenly remembered. I did tell a top aide to the Ukrainian president that, in fact, there was a quid pro quo, that there would be no military aid without opening this investigation into the Bidens which is a, a pretty important change. And it suggests that, you know, he, he I mean, the, the most likely explanation for this is he suddenly realized that he might be headed for a perjury charge. I mean, there have been a parade, Karen, of other witnesses coming forward and saying, by the way, we saw this as a pretty explicit quid pro quo. Exactly. And it, it's the, you know, great irony here was, uh, you know, the president keeps saying, read the transcript, which he's referring to the not it's not a transcript, but the notes from his own phone call uh, with the, with the Ukrainian president, which I think a fair reading suggests that, yes, there was a quid pro quo in there. But now, you know, every time you hear the phrase, read the transcript, you realize it's it's plural, read the transcripts, because there is a very, very consistent picture emerging here. Uh, Jackie Kucinich, I want to briefly, before our break, we don't have a ton of time, but I want to talk about the question of the whistleblower. Uh, There's been a push among Republicans to consider naming him uh, at a rally in Lexington, Kentucky with President Trump on Monday. Republican Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky pressed the media hard to reveal the identity of this whistleblower. We also now know the name of the whistleblower. The whistleblower needs to come before Congress as a material witness because he worked for Joe Biden at the same time Hunter Biden was getting money from corrupt oligarchs. I say tonight to the media, do your job and print his name. Now, Jackie Kucinich, we got about 40 seconds left. You know, 
the president's supporters are saying uh, somebody accused has the right to face his accusers. On the other hand, the point of whistleblower laws are to protect the identity of those who bring forth problems that were set out by the whistleblower and then reinforced by some of these witnesses. Right. And to keep them safe from intimidation, um, Rand Paul in particular, uh, it's interesting because he's someone who's advocated for whistleblower protections um, in the past. And it's not just him. If you read these transcripts, you see Republicans have a concerted effort to name him during those as well. And how how common or how appropriate is that? It's inappropriate. Uh, I think any experts in um, security uh, and whistleblower protections would say um, that uh, this isn't okay, and have said. We're talking about the week's top news. You can join our conversation. I'm David Falkenflick, and this is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balance scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big inside of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm David Folkenflick. We're taking a deep dive into the week that was. You can join our conversation. Later on, we'll be talking about this week's election results. For the moment, we want to hear your thoughts on the impeachment inquiry. It's led by Democrats and assailed by Trump's Republican allies. Follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook and On Point Radio. We're fortunate enough to be joined this week 
by Karen Tumulty. She's national political columnist for The Washington Post. Jackie Kucinich, she's Washington bureau chief for The Daily Beast and our own news analyst here at On Point, Jack Beatty. Uh, a little bit of news uh, earlier this morning, uh, Mick Mulvaney, uh, he's the president's acting chief of staff, that acting still part of his title, uh, was uh, the, the leader of the Office of Management and Budget for the federal government. He skipped his invitation this morning uh, to uh, attend the impeachment inquiry and to give testimony as well. He's one of a series of uh, senior figures, I believe uh, Rick Perry, uh, the uh, Secretary of Energy. Uh, Jackie, has the Secretary of, uh, of State been asked yet to, to come uh, give testimony? I can't remember. I believe he has, uh, but he, I don't think he's been subpoenaed or anything, but I would have to check that. Let me do that. <laughs> it, it all blends together after you know, it, it you kinda, know, there, thousands of pages of transcripts <laughs> fly by your face. <laughs> and there is, Jackie, there is this question of the strategy of the Democrats, whereas, you know, do they want to compel with subpoenas and do they want this that to be possibly thrown into the courts and uh, and have rulings against them. Right now, I think uh, John Bolton, the uh, former national security advisor and another figure uh, represented by the same lawyer, have put a query in front of a federal judge basically saying, the, you know, the administration is telling me I can't under executive privilege and the Congress is saying I must. Which way do I go on this? Now, something did happen with that case over ni- or yesterday. And I again, I would have to check it. But um, there, to your point, um, they are they, they have been fighting this in the past. But now that we're moving quickly and we're moving into these um, more public forums, uh, the focus seems to be shifting there uh, and rather than, you know, fighting some of these other officials. But again, um, I would have to check and see what the movement on um, the lawsuits are. So let's talk a little bit, Jack Beattie, about the uh, the Republican uh response to all this. There seems to be shifting variety of defenses. Uh, uh, First off, uh, there's the question of just saying, who the heck would do this? Standing alongside President Trump at a rally in Monroe, Louisiana on Wednesday night, Republican Senator John Kennedy tore into uh, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Speaker Nancy Pelosi is trying to impeach him. disrespect, but it must suck to be that dumb. So Jack Beatty, in that instance, just dismissing the prospect, uh, we've we've heard others uh, uh, seemingly go from a no quid pro quo to a yeah, so. Uh, and then we've uh, been hearing a little bit from Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, South Carolina, often a defender of the president. He gave a very specific defense of the administration's actions toward Ukraine in talking with reporters earlier this week. Graham said it wasn't pretty. I've read the transcript for myself. I made up my own mind. Volker, the special envoy, said there was no quid pro quo. Sunderland has changed his testimony to say he presumes there was. What I can tell you about the Trump policy toward the Ukraine, it was incoherent. It depends on who you talk to. They seem to be incapable of forming a quid pro quo. So, no, I find the whole process to be a sham, and I'm not going to legitimize it. Jack Beatty, what do you see in terms of the ways in which Republicans are going are coalescing around uh, arguments that can try to slow down, uh, beat down, or fight against uh, the uh, damaging revelations uh, that are surfacing in these impeachment hearings? Well, they're really having to reach for it because the facts are against them as the this tattoo of revelations, one deposition after another, one 
senior official after another confirms what the whistleblower said and confirms the implication do us a favor, though, of a quid pro quo in the transcript. So how are the Republicans reacting to this? The president has 30-some tweets in just the last few, well, I guess the last week, on the whistleblower. Where is the whistleblower, he says. The whistleblower's attorney says he's right here. He's where he's always been. He hasn't gone away. Uh, and the whistleblower's appearance, of course, would be um, superfluous, redundant. The revelations have gone beyond him, and his his claims about the transcript, or the document such as it is, uh, have been borne out by said document. Uh, the president has a third uh, tweet vein where he speaks of it. He says, Something happened, but it wasn't, quote, an impeachable event. And I think we're going to hear more of that questioning, of that line. It, You know, maybe I was acting a little bit like a real estate mogul and so on. Of course, he wouldn't even go that far. But it's not an impeachable event. Of course, the Democrats reply by saying, well, the Constitution speaks of treasury, treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors, extortion, which is a really what a quid pro quo amounts to, looks like bribery of a foreign official. So uh, the president's going to have trouble with not an impeachable event. And if he looks for help to the House Republicans, the transcripts don't show them as great uh, uh, sleuths. These are not Pete. This is not Perry Mason, as somebody said. Uh, They have talked about what are their questions dealt with? Conspiracy theories. The Bidens, George Soros, the Clinton Foundation, Hillary Clinton, the deep state, all of that. And then questions like this to Ambassador Yovanovitch. Ambassador Yovanovitch, do you believe that it's appropriate for your opening statement to be provided to The Washington Post? That uh, is a paradigm of the pathetic. Uh, if, If that's the kind of thing they're doing. It it uh, it may do them good on Fox next week, but uh, if that's the caliber of their questioning, uh, it it doesn't seem like it's going to uh, be very persuasive to uh, members of the public who are persuadable. Karen Tumulty, uh we just heard their clips from two uh, Republicans in the Senate. Are you seeing different defenses from those in the House who are trying to uh, create what you know obstacles they can? Uh, fine towards the president's impeachment in the House before it even goes over to the Senate. Are there is the party unified, or are these are these being are there different tactics from different clusters? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, I agree with Jack. One of the the more disturbing things is seeing the House Republicans sort of throwing in all these bizarre, far fetched conspiracy theories. Um, they, I think they are, it's pretty clear now where things are headed in the House. And by the way, the, the direction of public opinion on impeachment is also pretty clear. Um, since July, it has, you know, it, we now have a plurality of Americans saying in many polls that they would not only like to see the president impeached, they'd like to see him removed from office. So um, it, I think that the, the House Republicans are kind of incapable at this point of, of mounting a, a true defense as this as this rolls forward. So they are just going to sort of throw as many kind of peripheral things at it as they can, um, you know, including asking Marie Yovanovitch things like, you know, why is your nickname Masha? You know, just really mm-hmm. bizarre sorts of things. 
just sort of throwing implications out there without right. uh, with, without seeking truth, even if it's truth that might benefit the administration. Uh, exactly. You know, I think back to the whistleblower. It does seem as though, in some ways, I'm interested in in where he or she stood in government. At the same time, you know, with the protections Jackie was talking about earlier, there are reasons for that, and there have been so much. Uh, many other people coming forward and testifying. It seems as though it's it's almost like an issue for early October rather than for mid-November. I want to take a call now uh, from Albernet, Iowa. I hope I've rendered that right. Dave, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for calling in. What's your thinking about what you're seeing play out in front of you? Hi, David. A huge part, huge uh, fan of the show. Lovely. Uh, daily listener. And, and yeah, right out here in the middle of the cornfields of Iowa, Albernet, he did just fine with that. So, Fantastic. Um, my feelings on this impeachment are, are twofold. I think, A, they should wrap it up. I mean, really kind of move it along. Is I think they're going at a pretty good pace, but I think the guy's going to get acquitted in the Senate, and, and we're going to have to beat him in the ballot box uh, in 2020. That's my first point. And my you're second a Democrat. point is Congress uh, – I'm a Mayor Pete Democrat. That's gotcha. correct. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Um, I, I also think that the Congress – needs to wrap this up because they still seem to they don't seem to be able to do anything that's really uh, needed in my neck of the woods out here in rural Iowa, which is the UMCA trade, um, prescription drugs, things that they simply can't get done. I mean, the USMCA, which we need badly, has been sitting in the speaker's desk for almost for a better part of a year. The EPA regulations on renewable fuel standards and giving all the waivers for ethanol need to be dealt with. And it doesn't seem like they can do anything. And so, uh, on that point, I'm it's getting I'm getting weary. When you so say the UNCA, maybe, can, can you share with listeners when you say UNCA, what are you referring to? Uh, the U the United States Mexican Canada Trade Agreement. Oh, I'm sorry. So of course, it's this sort of the yeah, new NAFTA, as it were. No, no, no. Don't apologize. Yeah. We're we're happy to have that. So this, Dave, I appreciate your call and I appreciate your insight, Karen Tumulty. You know, we're going to be getting to the election uh, questions after uh, the next break, but at the same time, you know, the Congress is wrapped up in this, right? There's not a lot of uh, of mental space to do split screens, as they talked about during the Clinton Every years, to get other stuff done. Speaker Pelosi makes a public. Karen, go ahead. Well, and it's it's interesting that um, every time. Every time you hear um, Speaker Pelosi these days, she will begin her presentation by talking about all the things that the uh, House has passed that is that are stalled in the Senate and also the things like doing something about prescription drugs, which they would really like to, to make some progress on. So uh, despite Senator Kennedy's aspersions about her intelligence, uh, I think Speaker Pelosi very much realizes that, that, that this election is also going to have to be won on the issues. Jackie Kucinich, a couple other developments this week. I want to get to some of them. Uh, uh, first off, I guess I want to acknowledge there was this uh, development where uh, it turned out that the Attorney General Bill Barr had been asked by the president, according to uh, New York Times, Washington Post, other outlets, had asked by, by the president to hold a public press conference essentially exonerating him from the quid pro quo, which he seems to kind of have done, at least in terms of any campaign finance violations on paper. But he didn't want to hold a press conference doing it publicly. Uh, what does this say about the president's uh, desires in, in, in this direction? And what does it say about the relationship the president has with his attorney general at the moment? Well, it certainly doesn't seem like something that would be out of character. I mean, let's not forget what uh, what Bill Barr did 
um, during the when the Mueller report first came out. He came out with this very short statement that essentially mischaracterized what the actual full report said and took the narrative in a completely different direction with the American public. So he's played defense, I guess, for the president in the past. Now, on this Ukraine situation, the Justice Department broadly has tried to sort of distance himself from this. Now, they did play, they did issue a statement initially um, saying that part of this was reviewed by justice and they decided that nothing, uh, that nothing was wrong. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But on, on, in other ways, when Mick Mulvaney had that press conference um, a few weeks ago and mentioned DOJ, DOJ said, no, we don't have anything to do with this. So you are seeing um, on this particular issue, uh, there seems to be a step back. Um, now, the president is denying this. The president doesn't tell the truth a lot of the time. So on, on issues like this, and it's usually borne out by reporting later on and in, in, in this reporting now. So we have to take that for what it is. But um, and it doesn't seem to have damaged their relationship yet. Um, but certainly the fact that uh, justice does seem to be um, not as inclined uh, is, is, uh, is interesting, to say the least. There seem to be another other frustrations for the president. There's a book out by this anonymous White House aide, which doesn't have a lot of specifics, but sort of talks atmospherically about uh, what life was like in the inside the uh, the White House, uh, sort of indicating the president is juvenile, unpredictable, and 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 destructive. Uh, the presence of former political advisor Roger Stone is in court, and although it's not clear exactly what import to attach to it, prosecutors have indicated the president's uh, interactions with Roger Stone were far more intense and frequent than realized in the period in which Stone was trying to do things uh, involving uh, the leaks of Democratic emails obtained by Russians and whisked over to WikiLeaks during that 2016 uh, period. And then there's uh, uh, Trump's legal uh, concerns uh, with the charity. I want to – before talking a bit about that – uh, Jack Beattie, there's this uh, there was, there's this speech given by a U.S. District Judge Paul Friedman, uh, in which he t- claimed that the president's uh, rhetoric violates all recognized democratic norms. He gave this uh, during a lecture in Washington on Wednesday. He said, "We're in uncharted territory. We're witnessing a chief executive who criticizes virtually every judicial decision that doesn't go his way and denigrates judges who rule against him sometimes in very personal terms. He seems to view the courts and the justice system as obstacles to be attacked and undermined, not as a co-equal branch to be respected, even when he disagrees with its decisions. And Jack, this comes in the same week that uh, as a turns out a state judge uh, ruled that the president had to give $2 million to various charities and shut down his foundation, uh, acknowledge essentially wrongdoing and diverting uh, charity funds for his own uses uh, and basically to say you're not going to create a new charity unless it's under uh, you know, uh, uh, official uh, watch, watch in, in so doing. What does it say to you, Jack, about the moment that we're in where the judiciary is ruling on the president in a variety of different forums at a time at which he's attacking that institution itself, according to this federal judge? Well, it's a good moment for the judiciary. They're stepping up. Uh, the the uh, separation of powers really requires that. And it'll be put to the test in the Supreme Court shortly with a couple of important decisions that the Roberts Court will have to make about uh, about the admissibility of, uh, of various uh, presidential submissions, his tax returns, uh, whether that can can whether that whether they can be released to the New York uh, uh, prosecutor. Uh, uh, so we're going to find out uh, how how the Supreme Court reacts. But you know this uh, 
this judgment on the charities, there's just one thing I just want to mention here. It, we, we all remember early in the 2016 campaign, the president refused to appear on Fox News. It was a Fox News debate because the uh, one of the moderators had had asked him a question that embarrassed him, and he didn't want to uh, he didn't want to have to do that again. Uh, and he said, "I'm going to hold a rally instead in Iowa, and I'm going to raise money for vets." He held a rally. He said, "I raised six million dollars for vets, and it's going to go to the vets." And by the way, we got a list of the of the of the vets uh, groups that are going to get it on. You can get it after the rally, and so on. Uh, and now it comes out. That he didn't raise six million, he raised two point eight million, and instead of going to the vets, that went to his campaign. That's a <laughs> that's about as low a deal. This is a rich man, right? And he's he's making a big deal out of doing mm-hmm. this for the vets, and he did it for his pocket for his campaign. Let's, let's give Karen's uh, colleague David Farrantolt a lot of uh, credit for uh, uh, bird dogging that and figuring out where the money went and where the money did not go. Up next, we're going to be taking a look at this week's election results from Virginia and Kentucky, and we'll be checking in with the 2020 presidential race, as well as the implications for races around the country. I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. In other news this week, at least nine members of an American Mormon family were shot and killed in northern Mexico on Monday. Authorities suspect the women and children were victims of a territorial dispute between rival drug cartels. Over 400 people serving low-level drug and nonviolent offenses were walked free from Oklahoma state prisons on Monday. Lawmakers are calling it the single largest single-day commutation in U.S. history. Also, French President Emmanuel Macron says the NATO alliance is suffering from brain brain death, accusing Trump of undermining it by going his own way on Syria, Turkey, and the Kurds. You can join our conversation. For listeners in Virginia or Kentucky, did you cast a vote in this week's big state races? What's your take on the results? What are you thinking about how the 2020 race stands? Follow us on the Twitters and Facebook at On Point Radio. I'm speaking this week with Karen Tumulty. She's national political columnist for The Washington Post. Jackie Kucinich, Washington bureau chief for The Daily Beast, and On Point's own news analyst, Jack Beatty. Uh, Karen, let's start with you and your back Backyard. Let's talk about Virginia. Uh, that's a state that uh, had been considered a bellwether state. Uh, on Tuesday night, uh, the Democratic uh, governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, declared victory for his party there. I have one question for you. Do you all like the color blue? I said, do you like the color blue? 
because I'm here to officially declare today, November the 5th, 2019, that Virginia is officially blue. Congratulations. Karen Tumulty, is he right? What does that say? It is extraordinary how quickly, uh, in at least in political years, uh, Virginia has gone from being a very red state to a very blue state, you know, uh, with only a brief pause as a true bellwether swing state. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, it's... You know, it started at the top of the ticket. Virginia went from between LBJ and Barack Obama. It did not vote for a single Democrat for for president. It voted Republican again and again and again. And it has not voted for a Republican since then. And we also then saw uh, gradually over the next few years, the statewide offices all started also going Democratic. But with the flipping of the legislature, both houses, Tuesday night, it is just top to bottom a Democratic state. And there are a couple of things that I think are really interesting here. One is the degree to which this has been, you know, self-immolation on the part of the Republicans. As the state changes demographically, they have actually been going further and harder right. Um, They, you know, whether it was the transvaginal ultrasound bill that they they tried to pass a few years back on abortion or, uh, you know, as recently as, as this year after a mass shooting that saw a dozen people killed in Virginia, they adjourned a session, a special session to deal with gun control after only 90 minutes. They wouldn't even look at things like expanded background checks or red flag laws. So the, you know, the the tide is rising and the Republicans keep, you know, swimming the uh, swimming into it. And the second thing that I am really struck by in Virginia is the activism of women. Um, you have seen a lot of these these offices. For instance, last year in the state legislature, they flipped something like um, 15 House seats from Republican to Democrat. Eleven of those were done by women candidates. The gender gap in Virginia is just enormous these days. So this is a political transformation, I think, that has been very much led by women in Virginia. Jack Beatty, I want to uh, turn attention a little bit to uh, another Commonwealth, right? There's Commonwealth of Virginia, now the Commonwealth of Kentucky, uh, and uh, a couple of uh, elements of that. First, let's talk a little bit about the actual result. You had the current uh, governor, uh, Matt Bevan. Uh, uh, he's uh, epically unpopular, conservative. Uh, we can talk a little bit about about why he's unpopular, but he seems to have lost by only 5,000 votes. And he has called for an official recanvas of the election results of the Kentucky governor's race. At a press conference Wednesday, he pointed to what he called, what he claimed, were a number of significant irregularities. We know there have been thousands of, of uh, absentee ballots that were illegally counted. That's, that is known. Uh, and this, again, is something that's being looked into. Uh, we know that there are reports of people having been turned away, uh, incorrectly turned away from various uh, voting booths around the state. Again, things that need to be corroborated and looked into. And Jack Beatty, you know, in looking at the Louisville Courier Journal and other uh, outlets around the state, you know, even some of his own Republicans in state government are saying, "Dude, you got to provide some evidence on this because you can't just go around claiming these things." Uh, what do you make of, of the governor's stance in, in, in response to this very razor-thin margin that, that, that has surfaced in the vote? 
Well, it's a portent, isn't it, of uh, what could happen in 2020. Recall that Donald Trump wouldn't accept his victory. Remember that? He kept saying, oh, I would have won if it weren't for these three million, whoever it was, votes in California that no one has ever discovered were uh, were somehow wrongly cast for Hillary Clinton. So he wouldn't accept his victory. And the question, I think, that hangs over American politics in the next year and with Governor Bevin, a sort of uh, you know, poor man's Trump uh, indicates is, will he accept his defeat? Should he be defeated? I think that's the real significance of what we're seeing here. And I'm glad, actually, to see these Republican lawmakers, I'm reading in a Kentucky paper here, basically saying, Governor, put up or shut up. Show us this evidence or, uh, or, or that of fraud or whatever it is, or, or accept the results. Uh, Richard Hassan, the election expert at Berkeley, has written a has written a piece basically showing how Bevin could steal the election because of the peculiarities in the Kentucky law that allows the legislature to effectively begin to pick the the governor under certain circumstances. It hasn't been used in 100 years. But uh, I'm glad to see in this morning's paper that that looks like a remote possibility. I'm going to declare a point of personal privilege. I think Professor Hassan is uh, from my parents' university, UC Irvine. So I'm going to give a shout-out to the mighty anteaters there. I want to point out also that the governor has asked for a re-canvas, which means it would, I think, tally the individual counties. That's a little bit shy of what would be a full recount of each voter's ballot, the sort of nightmare uh, of 2000, but sometimes necessary in very close races. I want to uh, talk a little bit more about this uh, just with this clip at a rally for Kentucky Governor's Matt Bevin's re-election campaign in Lexington on Monday. President Trump placed himself at the center of what proved to be that very tight race. If you lose, it sends a really bad message, just sends a bad, and they will build it up. Here's the story. If you win, they're going to make it like ho-hum. And if you lose, they're going to say Trump suffered the greatest defeat in the history of the world. This was the greatest. You can't let that happen to me. All right, we're going to take a couple of calls now. First, uh, Sebastian is calling from Richmond, Virginia. Go ahead, Sebastian. Hi. Yeah, I wanted to talk about how impeachment really didn't seem like an issue that uh, was relevant to, I guess, more swing voters and independent voters in Virginia and Kentucky. I know the Kentucky governor focused more on health care, and in Virginia it was very much largely focused on gun reform. And I was curious whether you think that this will continue on as a strategy for Democrats, particularly into 2020 Senate and House races. I think that's a great question to throw to part of my panel. Thank you, Sebastian, for that call. Jackie Kucinich, uh, how uh, big a deal is uh, is impeachment? How big a national thing? Was President Trump right? Should we look at Kentucky through that prism? Uh, Mississippi's governor-elect Tate Reeves is a Republican. He might have won from a slightly smaller or somewhat smaller margin than Republicans win in Mississippi, but he won handily. Um, how much are these federal national races and how much are they – kind of specific to the uh, issues uh, in front of the voters right there? Well, I think if you ask President Trump now, he wouldn't want to view Matt Bevin through the impeachment prism um, because Matt Bevin's uh, attempt to nationalize that race and to make impeachment an issue uh, didn't really work out well for him. And I think most smart people would say that's because Matt Bevin was so unpopular that the president couldn't haul him out of the hole. Uh, that and, you know, I, w- I was in Ohio a few weeks ago and talking to Democrats and Republicans and impeachment really wasn't coming up yet. Now, 
once this becomes, uh, you know, the, the main event in Congress and once this is um, something that, you know, it, 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 it is it, it's the only thing coming out of Washington, I would imagine you have um, more people engaged. But, you know, on the ground, I was hearing a lot more, um, frankly, about climate change and health care, which I know I, we've probably heard from a lot of folks who've been out in the country, than impeachment at this point. All that said, I think for some and you're hearing this from some of these Democrats that are in districts that Trump won in 2016, they're concerned. And as much about the impeachment taking over um, as much as about the last caller, what he was saying about some of the other issues that they need to move through Congress to have a um, something to run on, uh, something like the trade agreement, something like prescription drug reform. That is, there is concern that um, impeachment would overtake something like that, where these folks could show that they didn't go to Washington just to run up against President Trump. Looking further south, let's go to Alabama for a moment, Jackie Kucinich, and and talk about Jeff Sessions, the once uh, the former Alabama uh, senator, the possibly future one. He's entering a crowded field. Doug Jones, a Democrat, won against uh, the controversial former state chief justice down there, uh, Roy Moore controversial because he was accused of basically sexually assaulting underage girls during that last race uh, that Moore ran. and yet, you know, Sessions comes back from Washington, uh, from the Justice Department, where he had been attorney general, kind of a humbled figure, it seems to me. Uh, what does he look like as a candidate for next year? You know, I don't know Shakespearean or what it would be in, in a literary comparison, but you know, Jeff Sessions had stayed in that seat and not uh, jumped in, not become the attorney general. He probably would have been there for as long as he could possibly want it. And now he has to fight for it. Um, he was the first uh, I believe he was the first senator to endorse uh, President Trump or then candidate Trump and was with him throughout the entire campaign. But his, uh, I guess, original sin in Trump's um, perspective of recusing himself from the Russia investigation just shattered um, any trust and, you know, um, uh, in, in that the president had in him and ruined that relationship. And the president still hasn't let that go. This morning, uh, he was asked whether he would campaign against Jeff Sessions. And he said, I won't, but we'll see how it goes. And then he said something to the effect of there's some stiff competition. So while Sessions has a war chest, he has universal, I'm sure, name recognition in the state. Um, he's finding himself uh, – He th- this could be a battle if Trump decides that maybe he does uh, – want to um, have someone else in there and doesn't want Jeff Sessions back in Washington. Which is fascinating given how tightly, as we heard at the top of the hour, Sessions is wrapping himself around uh, the Trump agenda uh, as he tries to present himself to voters. This obviously a seat seen as probably one of the most uh, vulnerable ones for Democrats, even as they hope to possibly regain uh, the Senate. Speaking of Russia. He's one step uh, behind holding a boombox outside of the White House. (laughs) I'll say anything. Say Alabama, I guess. Say Alabama. Say y'all. Say y'all. Meanwhile, speaking of Russia, Trump tells reporters this morning he's considering visiting Russia in May. Putin invited him to attend and observe the May Day Parade. It's worth noting that the May Day Parade inspired uh, Trump's musings to Defense Secretary Jim Mattis at the time and others that he wanted a similar military-style parade down Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. So far, that has not uh, materialized. Um, In the presidential race, looking ahead to 2020, 
2020, Karen Tumulty, uh, Beto O'Rourke uh, has exited uh, the scene. Uh, and Michael Bloomberg, uh, the former New York mayor, the media magnate, the billionaire whose fortune wildly dwarfs that of the president, uh, is noodling around with the idea of entering the presidential race. He's filing papers in Alabama to register for that state's uh, Democratic primary because the, the deadline is, is rushing toward him. And if he's going to do it, he's going to have to be submitted there. Um, Karen, what, what – what, I, I mean in some ways, what problem is Mike Bloomberg solving – uh, that he just thinks in this late moment he wants to enter this crowded field? Well, I know what he thinks he's solving. He had originally said that he did would not run if Joe Biden ran because he thought that Joe Biden would be a formidable candidate and would take the kind of centrist sort of tack that, that Michael Bloomberg would prefer. Uh, but I think it's what he is saying and what you're hearing from a lot of Democrats is they are really getting scared by Joe Biden's weak performance as a candidate. And there is a great fear that the party's next nominee is going to be Elizabeth Warren. And so I think uh, I think Bloomberg's thought – and this is a guy who's had this idea that he wants to run for president and never really gotten into it. He's been thinking about it for years. But he's essentially you know, trying to throw his body on the – tracks to stop that train. But it's fascinating because at least if you look at Democratic voters, just to push back on that a little bit, you know, polls taken by, by you know, reliable pollsters for HuffPost, for The Economist, for Gallup, you know, found that Democratic primary voters anyway are highly satisfied. They think they have two or more candidates who could defeat Trump. That's 71 percent of Democratic, Democratic-leaning voters. 53 percent of Democratic or Democratic-leaning voters thought they were three or more candidates who could beat him. And you've got people like uh, Klobuchar, Senator Amy Klobuchar, uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Joe Biden. You know, these are – there are some people on the Democratic center, right? So it's, it's surprising. I mean he's obviously a guy with a lot of money and great name recognition. But it's interesting to me that he thinks – you know, is this a conversation that's happening on Wall Street and among media elites, or is this actually a conversation happening when you go to Iowa? Well, it's it's interesting too because at the at the Post this week we had a poll come out that showed that we tested the top five names in the field and in a head you know hypothetical head to head against Donald Trump, and they all beat him handily. So, um, but you you do hear this concern that as the you know, as the primary moves forward and perhaps voters start looking a little more carefully at some of these candidates' positions on the issues, probably starting with Medicare for all, um, that that maybe, you know, these are candidates who couldn't beat Trump. Um, you know, I, I don't know so if that's the case. That's That'll be the last word uh, hearing from the president uh, this morning. He said that there's no one he'd rather run against than little Michael. He doesn't have the magic. Uh, the words we've been hearing from Karen Tumulty, national political columnist for The Washington Post. Thanks so much, Karen, for joining us. Great to be here. And thanks to Jackie Kucinich, Washington bureau chief for The Daily Beast. We appreciate your being here as well. Thank you so much. And our own On Point News analyst, Jack Beatty. Have a great weekend, Jack. Thank you, David. You can continue the conversation, get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org, and you can follow us on Twitters and Facebooks at On Point Radio. Our executive producer is Karen Shipman. Me, I'm David Folkenflick. You've been listening to On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. 
But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the Balanced Scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the Balanced Scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken? wherever you listen to podcasts, and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.